Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or on the podcast, this is Out of the Box. It's the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and we look at their record collection and the stories from their life and how those things interact with each other. Today, my guest and I are recording from the FBI radio studio in so-called Redfern, which is one of the heartlands of Indigenous resistance. Recording here also means we're broadcasting on unceded Aboriginal lands, so I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I reckon today's guest might be familiar to you. Yes, on this episode of Out of the Box, we're diving into the stories and songs that have defined the life of Julia Jacqueline. This is an artist who's been honing her craft for her entire life, taking classical singing lessons growing up, performing at open mics, joining a bunch of bands, and finally arriving at the Julia Jacqueline Project. You might know her through her albums Don't Let the Kids Win or Crushing, or the album she released last year, her starkly intimate and completely universal third LP, Pre-Pleasure. such a beautiful record and on it Julia reflects on a lot of the defining moments in her life. So today on Out of the Box we'll do the same, walking through a story from childhood to now and stopping to visit the songs that have soundtracked the big moments. Julia Jacqueline, what an honour, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh you're welcome. I want to jump into this interview at Lydia Wears a Cross. Mm -hmm. It's a song that kind of catalogues your experience of being a small person asking big questions. So I want to go back and maybe look at it from the perspective of little Julia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I think in the song you kind of look at it with hindsight, but Mm -hmm. when we see it through the eyes of an eight-year-old, what does that time look like to you? It just makes me think of year four (laughs) and just being in a Catholic school and where you have to go to church every week at school, but then not having a religious family and... You know, it's it's like a weird time where you're trying to understand how the world works. And the school's kind of teaching you one version and then you go home and your parents are like, oh yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> you're like, what do I believe? And also just trying to make friends, like, yeah, Lydia who I mention in the song, who's in the title, um, she was my friend in year four. I messaged her actually when the song came out just to let her know, um, which was really nice because we hadn't talked since we were like nine. How did she feel um, about the song? Yeah, she was cool. She was like so supportive and she still has the cross because she used to wear this like really beautiful big gold cross and I really wanted it. I like thinking about that time in my life. Because it's um, that like I mean, how weird is it to be that age? And I remember when Princess Diana died. Like we all sat in a circle. We had to like go around and like pray for her. And I didn't really get it. You know, I I hadn't even like fully understood what death was yet. 
Let's mm. zoom out to the setting for this. It's the Blue Mountains. I think people generally think of the Blue Mountains as a place where creative people come from. Yeah. Was that your experience? Yeah, people always say that. And and I'm sure I'm sure they do come from there. <laughs> but it wasn't didn't feel like it growing up there. Definitely mm. felt like a bit of a cultural void, but just because there was like not really there's not like music venues there. I didn't there's not much there's not actually that much music going on even though like musicians seem to come from there. Probably just there's not much to do, so you might as well do music. And you were doing music for most of your life, weren't you? Yeah, but I was doing like classical singing and musicals and I I didn't really know how to do music outside of those kind of structures because I didn't know anyone who was in a band or anything. I mean, there was like one band at our high school. Um, I think like my neighbour played guitar sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't really, I didn't know about rock and roll back then, I guess. What's it like to take on classical music as a genre when you're a little person? Did you relate to the things that you were singing about? No, not at all. <laughs> no, you're singing. And a lot of the time you're not, you're singing in German or Italian as well. So I didn't know what I was saying and I was 11 so I didn't understand like love or death um, which is what a lot of uh, operatic songs are about mm. and it was very, it felt very punitive. You're always getting in trouble for mm. doing doing it wrong and like it was such a long time until I started writing my own music so mm. I guess at that early age you are just like putting other people's words in your mouth and I don't know, seeing what works. Was there music that you did relate to when you were growing up? Not until I was a teenager. Because when you're a kid, you're listening to music like... You're either listening to like Top 40, which you can't really relate to, and then you're listening to your parents' music as well. And you're also kind of like listening to music that you think other people will approve of you for listening to. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. I wanted people to be impressed when they <laughs> scrolled down my library. <laughs> But you did like a Doris Day song. Tell mm. me how you got introduced to Doris Day. So Doris Day was just like what we listened to as a family in car trips and like we watched a lot of her movies. Like a lot of my first memories, music memories, are Doris Day memories. And, yeah, it's still like a – it's just one of those really nice things that you have with your family that you can all listen to and it takes you back to a time when you were all together and you know life was so different but yeah the first time I sung oh it was so it was Doris Day's birthday and ABC Radio was doing this thing where they were getting people to call in who were Doris Day fans and tell some sweet tales or whatever of their um, experiences with her music or whatever and so my mum called and put me and my sister on the phone and I was about five or six at the time and they asked me what my favorite song was and then I sung perhaps 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 <laughs> um into the phone and then they used that me singing as the intro to the program for a year wow which was very cool so you've had radio play your whole life I know yeah yeah started <laughs> off really strong I remember I had a cassette tape and I would just like take it around to my friend's houses and be like check this out <laughs> Your poor sister, too, who was on the phone call and just had the spotlight taken away. Yeah, well, she didn't take the opportunity to sing. She just 
she just talked. I knew I had my one shot. I want to circle back to that song in a couple of minutes' time, but first let's go to school. You were talking about starting off at a Catholic school, but you finished at a performing arts school. Mm-hmm. What was the difference between those two in maybe the way that you engaged with music? Well, I went to a, I guess, a Catholic primary school and the music was very, like we sung at assembly a lot and they were those kind of like, welcome to the family, we're glad that you have come. I remember that was one of them. Um, Lots of religious songs and then, and then I went to a, just a public school, Wimley High School, um, where, yeah, I like sung at school at that school. I was, yeah, I did. I was in like some of the musicals, and I would sometimes sing at assembly, which was always like super humiliating. <laughs> and Talent Quest, I sung, um, you know, a few songs at the school Talent Quest to backing CDs also humiliating yeah I was I was expressing myself at school by singing like evanescent songs (laughs) yeah you also expressed yourself through drama in high school tell me about that I was a very I was quite a serious child so I wanted to do like serious things whereas like acting when you're younger is very like drama games and everyone's been like super like outgoing and um I just wanted to do like dark monologues and stuff like that did you do Um, any monologues in high school yeah I did like I remember I did one from looking for La Brundy I actually caught up with some high school friends the other day and they were we were all laughing about the fact that I think I did three monologues at school and each one I like killed myself at the end of it like that (laughs) was the it was so dramatic (laughs) it was like just I always I just wanted to do things that felt like really intense and um so I did yeah just just very like age inappropriate um <laughs> monologues and Newtown I did like a one person like little play about Edith Piaf which was also incredibly dramatic I think I've lightened up a lot since then I I was very internal and I think when you're in you have a very internal life before you understand lots of things yeah I just think I was very serious because I was really in my own head just constantly trying to like figure things out in my own head I just had a very busy mind Mm -hmm. and I still do I just I have better social skills now I guess (laughs) as an adult thank god figuring things out Mm. all through high school and in a few minutes we'll um we'll look a bit more at some of the things you figured out during that time but first I want to jump into that song you were talking about before by Doris Day it's called Perhaps 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 Mm -hmm. it's the one that you sang for the ABC yeah (laughs) it's um also yeah pretty um age inappropriate for a six-year-old but I remember really loving it A million times I've asked you And then I ask you over Again You only answer Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps If you can't make your mind up We'll never get started And I don't 
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on our website, fbiradio.com. My name is Mia Hull. That song was by Doris Day. It was called Perhaps, 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 and it was chosen by my guest on the show, Julia Jacqueline. Hi. Hi. (laughs) I mean, before we played that song, we kind of told the story of someone who's been interested in music their whole life. It was, you know, started off with you singing that song into the radio at six and then doing music at a performing arts school. By the time you got to the end of high school, Julia, were you ever looking forward and seeing music as a viable career path? No. I don't think anyone does, surely, until it is, I guess. Um, And I didn't really see singing as something I would do once school was finished because, I don't know, that's not the message I was getting as a kid. It was like... This is something that you do at school for fun. But then when you become an adult, you have to do something serious. <laughs> and it didn't feel very serious. And I, you know, you don't, you can't be what you can't see. And I definitely didn't know anyone who did music for a living. So it took, yeah, it probably wasn't until I was like 26, <laughs> really, that mm. I was like, oh, this could be my job. That's, yeah, okay. It's interesting that. You have to take it so seriously in school, though, but then at the end they're like, guess you have to do something else now. Yeah, that was that was really confusing because I did sing a lot and I put a lot of energy into it and it was very encouraged for me to put a lot of energy into it. And, and yeah, I think that happens to a lot of kids. And then school's over and it's like, okay, well, you have to forget about that thing you just dedicated, <laughs> you know. I, I, I'm sure it happens a lot with, like, dance too. Mm. Like, a lot of the time kids are just like dancing they're just dancing all the time and then they finish school and it's like okay no more dancing <laughs> yeah. new new dreams I guess uh, yeah when you were at the Newtown Performing Arts School you were commuting from the Blue Mountains but mm. you moved to Sydney after school didn't you yeah yeah, yeah. I actually lived my first apartment was literally above just just there it was like <laughs> Julia was pointing upwards and kind of to the left. It was literally <laughs> like the, you know, the gar- where you drive into like the garage, yeah. Def Wolf and stuff, and Troy Horse, which was an old rehearsal studio, mm. which is not there anymore. I haven't heard of it, oh, so maybe not. Wow. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> that was a time. <laughs> yeah, I lived just there. So I used to always see people coming in here and we were just like, wow. <laughs> People are going. We just thought it, this place was just the coolest. Well, welcome back. It's yeah, nice to have it's you. So cool. I remember when we first came into this building. It was like, it felt we felt very cool. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, this isn't your first time at FBI, and I want to mm. talk about that later. Let's talk about the move to Sydney. You came here to study. Mm-hmm. What yeah. were you doing? I I went to Sydney Uni, did an arts degree. You know, classic. Why do you say it like that? Oh, I don't know. I guess it's just what you do when you don't know what you want to do, I guess. But I, yeah, I ended up doing social policy in the end. Um, I wished that I had that kind of brain and, you know, in a different world. Like, yes, I, you know, it's something I am really passionate about as well. But I think the whole time I was, I was really passionate about music, but it just felt couldn't say that out loud because it feels I don't know it just felt cringy or something kind of <laughs> had to pretend that it was it was just this like hobby but 
yeah, secretly I was like, oh, I like I want to do that though. <laughs> yeah. When did you first cross paths with Elizabeth Hughes? We were in a dance class together in Springwood. Yeah, we both were at the local dance school. <laughs> I remember Liz, the first time I saw Liz, she was choreographing a dance to Young Hearts Run Free. Oh. Um, in like, I don't know, that would have been like 2000 and, that would have been like 2000. I was going to say 2010. No, 2000. Um, yeah, we were little kids. And then, yeah, we just kind of like kept bumping into each other over the years and then. I joined her band when I was 19. Yeah. Do you think there was like a moment that your relationship with Liz kind of crystallised? Yeah, we like, we both were backpacking, also a classic move, um, after school in South America and we kind of met up there and yeah, like I didn't, I didn't know that many people who were passionate about songwriting, I think, at that time. And we just kind of connected over that, just love of songs. And we, um, yeah, just started, like, cringily jamming back then in a youth hostel. Oh, what a a story. Were you performing for the other people at the hostel? I think it was just being young and, like, you're playing guitar in a public space. (laughs) And you're, like, thinking that everybody's into it. Do you remember what you were playing? I think it was um, Mango Tree by Angus and Julia Stone. It was like that era. Through my eyes I can see It's I remember I, well, the first music festival I went to, there were just the new, like, you know, I saw them in this tiny tent and at um, Great Escape Festival. It was one year in 2007. And I was 17. And, uh, yeah, it was just my first music festival I'd ever been to. So my whole life, you know, changed. But, yeah, that was, um, that was the, yeah, Angus and Julia Stone were kind of <laughs> hot on the scene. And, uh, yeah, I remember going to, like, a Sanity CD shop after that festival with my mum and buying their EP. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, anyway, we, I think that was the song we played. Rest in peace, sanity. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So you said you joined Liz's band when you were 19. What was that band? Uh, it was called, what was it called at the beginning? I think it was called Little Beard. I think that was our first name. It was mainly like an open mic band. Mm. We had a, we played a few terrible gigs, but I was just kind of singing backing vocals. Like I wasn't. I couldn't play guitar yet. I think I knew a couple of chords, but I was just singing backing vocals of her songs and it was a pretty random mix of songs and covers and, yeah. But your music making with Liz would kind of form fantastic furniture later down the track. Mm, Tell me about that. Well, yeah, our first band was Little Beard and we kind of, we mainly played it like, this night called Chicks with Picks. <laughs> and we played at Little Guy Open Mic Night all the time. We just, yeah, we kind of said yes to everything. So we just, we played everywhere. And Liz was very confident in a way that I wasn't. Like she was really good at just kind of walking into a bar and being like, hey, mm. we want to play a gig. 
mortified me, but it's totally like, you know, we just played a lot and we weren't very good. And, um, but yeah, so we kind of like learnt everything in that band. Like, you know, you learn how mics work, you learn how to like play with a guitar amp, all those things I take for granted now. And a lot of people take for granted, but you know, you kind of have to learn a lot of that stuff publicly, which is, you know, no one sits you down and teaches you all of these things at the beginning. But I so, think that's so special because you were saying that when you were interested in music growing up, you didn't really have anyone to look to or, mm. you know, someone to guide you through that. So to kind of do it hand in hand with Liz is yeah, so nice. Yeah, I think like, I think a lot of people have that experience mm. at the beginning where you just kind of find someone who's got the same thoughts as you and you just kind of form this little alliance and you kind of learn with them. And so, yeah, we just totally learnt together how it works. And um, and then that band turned into, I think it was called Salta for a while. Then it was called Video Set because we used to, like, make these, like, videos and project them behind us, like kind of artsy videos mm. like I remember we went to like Coogee baths and like <laughs> Liz like filmed me like naked swimming around then we had it like projected <laughs> behind us while we sung and then that eventually turned into Fantastic Furniture kind of maybe six years later like just the band kind of just kept changing as our tastes change and and Fan Firm was definitely like when we got to the point where we just wanted to have fun because for years it was like it was kind of fun but like it's you're also really trying to make it something and it's that that's I don't know after years of doing that we just wanted to have fun and that's where Fanfern came from and then Fanfern was like the most successful version of the band Mm. by far so that was a really good lesson I think for me yeah for all of us yeah I want to leave the music here for a moment and come back to it. And, I mean, just a snapshot at this point in your life, were you still in uni? Yeah. I graduated when I was 24. Mm. Oh, and Fan started when I was 24. So it was kind of like... Huge year. Yeah, big year. Yeah. <laughs> and when did you go to Bath? That was when I was 21. Because I joined Liz's band and we'd been playing for maybe a year. And then I decided to move to England for for love and so I kind of quit the band and I dropped out of uni and I went to England and it was a big disaster (laughs) and but then I was kind of stuck there because I didn't buy a return ticket because I was so confident that I was gonna that is such a big risk yeah I went over with like three hundred dollars and a one-way ticket and I was like I'll just and I had a British passport because my dad's from there so I was like I'll just get a job and I'll be in love, so, like, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> and it, it didn't work out. So I kind of was super embarrassed to come home So I, because I told everyone I was basically never coming back. <laughs> and so I kind of just well, – and I also had to earn enough money to get home. So I kind of stayed there for six months. and But that was really good because that was the first time I'd played music by myself outside of – I'd never, yet yeah, played my own songs. So that was where I started – playing my own songs in England, just at this pub, this local pub, open mic night as well. And then I, yeah, I came back and 
yeah, rejoin the band. Liz was just like, yeah, come back. <laughs> so. so you come back, rejoin the band mm. and pick up your degree again. Yeah. And then what happens when you get to the end of your degree? Was there any part of you that wanted to do social policy or was it just music from then on? I remember being like, I'll just give it a year or something. Like, yeah, I'll just give it a year and put everything I – I'll make a record and then just, you know, if when just whatever happens, happens. So, yeah, I made Don't Let the Kids Win th- that the year after I graduated and, yeah. It did, it did work out. And <laughs> yeah, in a couple of minutes' time, I want to talk about Don't Let the Kids Win, but let's wind back first to before, you know, these big, full early 20s years of yours to maybe 14-year-old Julia thinking mm-hmm. about what the future might look like. You've chosen an Avril Lavigne song to play on the show today. I have, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about this one. I just, I was thinking about this and I'm like, I was saying to you before how I feel pressure to pick like all these cool songs, but you know, if I'm being truly honest about the songs that kind of changed me and made me, um, especially musically, yeah, I mean, this song was huge because yeah, it's like it's it's funny to look back on it now, and you know, you can kind of have that adult, that cynical adult kind of attitude, you know, because you look back at Avril Lavigne, you're like, okay, she wasn't like actually a punk or anything (laughs) but I just it was it was huge because I was like 13 when she when she dropped complicated and Avril Lavigne was just like I think like that like being a girl was cool that definitely I didn't feel like that for a long you know it's definitely wasn't a time where being a girl felt like a cool thing to be and I think that she just kind of just made it seem like it was cool to be a girl and to also like play music and and I I guess I picked this song mostly because I had a band in high school called Anonymous and we played, oh, what time did we do? We did Skater Boy in our set. That was cool. That was like my first band. It was like um, my first experience playing music outside of classical or, you know, musicals or whatever. And it was super formative and I will always be grateful. And on, on the Crushing Tour I covered this song at the end of every show, oh. which felt like such a nice little homage to my younger self. And we'll do an homage to younger you now on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. Chosen by Julia Jacqueline, this track is I'm With You by Avril Lavigne. artist we don't often hear on FBI Radio 94.5. It was Avril Lavigne. The song was called I'm With You and it was chosen by Julia Jacqueline on Out of the Box. Um, quite a formative song for you. Thanks so much for bringing it. <laughs> um, we talked about your time in Fantastic Furniture, a band that would kind of take you here to FBI Radio a few times mm-hmm. to do interviews. I mean, we're about to celebrate our 20th birthday and I feel like FBI and Julia Jacqueline's stories kind of intertwine mm-hmm. a lot over time. Can you tell me maybe about your memories of the station? 
Yeah, I was thinking about this before. I actually had breakfast with Liz just before this and we were talking about how the first time we ever heard our voices on the radio, like except for when I was a kid, music that we'd made, it was it was like 11.30 at night and this person called Josh, last name I can't remember, he, he made Music Hunter point and shoot and he made a he did like a remix of a salter song called tiger song i can't yeah i think that was it and you guys played it at like 11 30 at night on like a saturday and we'd been at like a nightclub and we came out and we sat in a bus shelter and we both had like an ear each and we listened to it on the radio and it was just so exciting because it was the first time we'd heard our music on the Mm. radio, even though it was like this remix that didn't actually sound that much like the song in the end, but it was, yeah, it was just super exciting. Having community radio support is just so, yeah, it's just super pivotal to like, to, it was super pivotal to my career. And um, am I using pivotal right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just doubted myself. And also just like to your confidence, you know, just like having your local radio station say that your music is worth playing just felt it gave me a lot of confidence and um yeah, just I feel like I've been in here at every step. Like my first EP that I released um that I just like recorded in my bedroom in Redfern. Um, you know, you guys played one of the songs and that was super exciting and yeah, fan fun and every album and I've, I've sung in here so many times. Mm. Yeah. It's just like super important. Yeah. And I'll never, I'll never forget it. And I'm super grateful. Well, yeah. Now that we're in our 20th year, it's so Mm. nice to look back on all of these special moments and it's so nice to have you back here to celebrate that with us too. (laughs) Backtracking to the Avril Lavigne song, Mm -hmm. before we played it, we kind of talked about when you first started making solo music, it kind of started with doing those open mic nights in Bath. Were Mm -hmm. open mic nights important to you? I imagine it's kind of your first time playing alone. Yeah, I I honestly don't know where I would be if not for the open mic scene, especially in Sydney. Like I played open mic nights every week for six years. That's where I got confidence. Like I don't know what it would be like to go from writing songs and then going straight into like playing gigs. (laughs) Like I'm so glad I had a huge buffer where I could kind of work out a lot of the kinks and get used to singing into a microphone and without much pressure. Mm. And that's where I, like all the songs for my first record is, that's where I tried them out. And and like it felt pretty scary at the time, but it, you know, the pressure is so low. Tell me about the difference then from playing songs from Don't Let the Kids Win at open mic nights to then touring that album. It's like it's completely different. Open mic nights... The audience is mainly people waiting to sing their own songs. And everyone's just, like, super supportive as well, even if you're really bad. Yeah, that's not the case with your own gigs, really. So, yeah, you know, um, that was the first time playing with a band and, um, 
yeah, very different. But I'm glad I I'm glad I didn't start there because mm. it would have taken me a lot longer to get good. <laughs> I saw you play at City Recital Hall last year, and you played some songs from that album. One of them was Motherland, and mm-hmm. when you went to play it, you kind of talked about not liking playing that song because it reminded you of a panic attack that you'd had mm. on your Europe tour with that album. Oh, yeah. Can you – I mean, I don't want to – I don't want you to, you know, dig into your anxieties oh, yeah, during yeah. that time too much, but I imagine to have a panic attack on stage, you were probably in some kind of headspace during the tour. Yeah. I think my first album tours were just really – that was probably my least favourite part of being a musician, absolutely. That was by far the worst bit because you go from, like, you, you go from having a local community support and suddenly that kind of dropped away and I felt, yeah, I was just really scared of not living up to whatever hype had kind of surrounded me even though it wasn't even that much it just felt like a lot of pressure that looking back now like it it wasn't that serious but it it just does feel like it it feels like there's a lot of people who are expecting a lot from you and also you kind of do get a sense of just how disposable you are once you kind of step into the industry Mm. and like if I don't know I felt this immense pressure of like if I if I don't like live up to this, if I don't do a good job, there's like a thousand people who can. And yeah, it was just it was just a lot of pressure. And it was going from being in yeah, a tight knit community and it not feeling very it just felt like light and then it kind of just turned into this really serious thing where you're also suddenly having to like really think about the financial aspects of it and you're employing your friends suddenly, mm. like the dynamic shifts and suddenly you're like a boss and – but everybody as well is like, you must be having the the best time and you don't want to admit that you're not because it feels really selfish because mm. you know how lucky you are. So it was just very lonely, a really lonely time and – I'm glad it's I'm glad it's over. And and that did kind of manifest in having panic attacks towards the end of that album run because I just was like so wrecked and yeah, and I just didn't want to I just didn't want to admit that I was struggling. I think that's when things can really get out of hand and yeah. How long do you think it took you to bounce back from that experience? It took me like 3 years, I reckon. Like yeah, I just became really scared of performing live, really terrified of it. And, and Motherland was just, for whatever reason, the one song that, that was where my brain would just freak out. It was just like, associ- I think that's because that was the song I had my first panic attack on stage yeah. during. And so it was almost like my kryptonite or something. <laughs> I just thought like if I play it, I'm going to have another panic attack. So I kind of avoided playing that song for years. Oh, 
makes me so sad that that's the song that makes you sad because I love Motherland so yeah, much. Yeah, it's like a, it's a nice song and it's like <laughs> super chill, but it yeah, I became like really scared of it. Well, we're going to play a different song now mm-hmm. on FBI Radio 94.5. You're not playing it. We'll just play it on the radio. Yeah. I'll just press a button. Um, it's by Mountain Man. Yeah. Why did you pick it? I picked this song because I was thinking about um, this band, I think, was huge for, like, once again, me and Liz and Rosie, who was also in my first band. I think it just really represented to me, like, up until that point, before I heard this recording and this album, I was really scared of recording and I thought it just felt really difficult and I didn't feel like I could do it and it felt really scary and I don't know, it felt like you had to do it, it had to be super perfect. Um, And we kind of, when this record came out, it was just at such a perfect time because like as you hear in the recording, it's like just, it's super scrappy and it's just three um, women singing in, like, together. It's There's mistakes. There's, like, I don't know. It really kind of just made me go, like, oh, I can do this. Like, it's so many so many of those things, like, and I guess a lot of the songs um, I chose are, like, songs that made me see a path forward and made me, just gave me the confidence that I could do it as well, which is so cool. And it's harder to connect with that those kind of feelings now because I do it a lot more. But, you know, it's really good to remember just how much, like, you can hear something that gives you – that almost feels like it gives you permission mm. to, do, to do this. Yeah. And, um, I almost feel relief when I hear you say that. Like, I can do this too. Yeah, it just f- suddenly felt like, oh, recording is accessible, like – it doesn't have to be that serious. And I think everybody, everybody like who is a musician, like once you move from making music to recording music, that's a huge shift. And that can be really difficult because it's just like a whole different thing. Like just writing songs in your room compared to like sitting in front of a microphone trying to get those songs down. That can be really hard. But I just feel like this song mm-hmm. and this album was the transition for us. And we, we played a lot of these songs in our set, early set. Yeah. listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That song was by Mountain Man. It was called Seawee Seawee and it was chosen by Julia Jacqueline who, when you were introducing it, talked about almost a renewal in hopefulness or that song maybe showing you a bit of a path forward. Was that path forward crushing or did it take you to crushing? I mean, I guess it all all, all led to crushing in some way, but that was, um, that was before Don't Let the Kids Win. And I think you hear that probably more actually in Crushing because I think Crushing was when I just realised that recording is, I don't know, it's more about getting a feeling down and not getting, like, perfect music down, which is, I I was still stuck in that world a bit with Don't Let the Kids Win. And you can kind of hear it. Well, I can hear it. I can hear, like, that I'm kind of (laughs) timid in the way I performed a lot of those songs on that record, whereas Crushing was a bit more... 
yeah, natural and relaxed. Well, let's jump to 2019 when Crushing came out. I mean, I feel like that was a really pivotal moment in your career and I imagine your audience changed a lot during that time as well. How did it feel to have so many people relate to this album? It is really nice, even though, yeah, it can be intense sometimes, but I think my first record, people liked it, but it didn't feel like it fully connected. And then I think this record just like connected in a different kind of way that felt a bit more natural and not so reliant on like hypey stuff. It was just people connected with the music and Mm. not any kind of bells and whistles type stuff. And it's cool. Mm. I think it's like, especially now I'm so grateful when, you know, young people talk to me about this record and how much it made them want to make music and write songs. And, you know, I get tagged a lot in like young people playing these songs in their band sets. And I'm like, that is, that is just so cool for that to have that kind of effect because, you know, some of the songs I picked tonight, like tonight, it's a day. It's the day. <laughs> some of the songs I picked today, like they were those songs for me and they yeah. were so important to me. So like the idea that any of my songs have the same effect on people, I don't know, it just makes you feel like, not to be cheesy, but like that your life is has meaning or something, mm. you know, even if even if that's like all my life amounts to or something, it's like that's enough and that's really cool. We talked before about your experience touring Don't Let the Kids Win for the first time and maybe some of the darker sides of that and you said it took you a while to kind of feel okay after that tour. Do you think you entered your crushing era with any kind of trepidation or fear? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, once I started touring, um, just before Crushing came out, like the gap between ending Don't Let the Kids Win and Crushing coming out, like I was really scared that it would follow me into Crushing because it's always scary to do a second record. And But enough time had passed, I think, and I don't know, I'm trying to not like dwell on that stuff anymore because I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> like it's not that serious. It's just songs. <laughs> I wasn't very confident in Don't Let the Kids Win. I wasn't confident in my, yeah, I wasn't that confident in what I had to say. So, and I think that showed because I didn't want to like, I wasn't sure. Whereas with Crushing, I was like, I don't know. By that point, I knew that vulnerability was the good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. The next song you've picked is by Aldous Harding. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me about this one. Yeah, I just, I wanted to, I picked this one because um, this was the song that I heard that made me um, go to New Zealand to record with Ben Edwards, who made Don't Let the Kids Win, and um, that's who Aldous Harding made that record with. And, yeah, I just remember hearing it, and it and it just kind of opened a door for me, and um, I just knew I kind of wanted to make a record that had that kind of approach um, and I, I don't think my record sounds much like that, but it was just I kind of knew there was just an approach to production and recording and, yeah, and I just emailed Ben and I didn't, yeah, I'd, I'd only ever worked with my friends like in our bedrooms and stuff, so that was my first experience like reaching out to a like a real professional. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, it kind of like set me on a, yeah, set me on the path. And that was such a wonderful first album experience. This is Stop Your Tears by Aldous Harding on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by Julia Jacqueline, who chose this song. We go walking in the hallways Now and then a record gives a tune Sometimes we hang from our chambers Baudelaire in the afternoon Stop Your Tears on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by Julia Jacqueline and we kicked off this interview talking about Lydia Wears a Cross, a song from your album Pre-Pleasure that came out last year. And I don't know, it's a really reflective album and it kind of straddles this line between thinking about life and actually living life. How do you think you arrived at this place where you are becoming so reflective and looking back on your life in this way. This record was probably quite different to make than the last two because I felt like it was the first time I really had to like, like kind of go to work, you know. Mm. The other two records maybe came from a bit more of an, uh, an organic, natural place, whereas this record was very much like, okay, like let's, we have to do this. We have to like show up and and make, songs and it's like I guess it's kind of my job to be reflective Mm. now it's not like it's kind of different to like it's not necessarily a natural state of like I just happened to be reflective and then I decided to make a record because I was being reflective it's like Mm -hmm. I have to be reflective in order to make music so it's not necessarily like something that and I, and it was like you know it was over, I wrote it over 2020 and 2021 mm. so I also had just spent two years like thinking about the state of the world yeah. and my place in it <laughs> and I think that that all accumulated in this record but yeah sometimes I would like to be less reflective <laughs> but it's the yeah it's kind of part of the job now which is cool but it's a bit exhausting sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's funny you talk about having to work on this record or like having to go to work because I feel like on some of my creative projects they just come to me quite naturally and they just turn out beautiful. And mm. then sometimes I feel like if I have to spend a really long time trying to get something good or work really hard on it, I'm worried that the result won't be good because it didn't come as easily. Was that your experience on pre-pleasure? Yeah, and I think that's always been my fear too. And I think it's a creative fear that we all have. It's like if we try really hard, we're going to make bad stuff. Um, But I think that's like really, I don't know where that comes from because I think we also want our artists to not work hard or something. We, We like the idea. We're always taken by stories of, people who wrote you know a hit in five minutes so like we're very taken by we want our artists to be full passion and you know that we're driven by like this desperate desire to like make art and it doesn't come from a place of work mm. Or even in the way that we kind of fetishize artists who are really young and maybe exactly have come at it with like no experience yeah they can we just kind do of it. We, we like, yeah, and, and I guess it is an industry where we really value, like, youth and 
you know, a lot of people's first records are there, you know, and that's really hard for artists because it's like you work hard and you think you're getting better, but then people kind of just like your earlier stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so I'm trying to just like not, I think this was a good exercise in not letting that kind of thinking get to me because I did really work hard on this record and I do think it produced some pretty good songs. And so I'm not as worried anymore about that, but I also am conscious of, I know that people like the story of it, you know, just like coming from straight from the heart or something instead of, we don't want to picture our artists like actually sitting and like grinding over mm. a song. Um, I can delete this part of the interview if you want. Yeah. You can yeah, just yeah. pretend <laughs> yeah, it just totally. came to you naturally. <laughs> I know. I'm always like seesawing between like trying to keep up like... <laughs> It's it's even like comes up in when you talk about music and like the you constantly asked about the start of your career. You constantly asked about like did you ever imagine you'd be a musician? And it's like I've been doing it for like 12 years now. Like I'm kind of beyond the point where of course at one point in my life I didn't think I'd be a musician, but like I am now and I have been for more time than I've been anything else really. Yeah, I'm going on a tangent. <laughs> I just feel like sometimes I'm like I I like to just, I don't know, yeah, not dwell too much on that time. But uh, it's also that we all love that stuff. <laughs> I love it too. Like we all love the early stories, you know, <laughs> the actual like work stories aren't as romantic, I guess. I want to dig a little bit more into working hard on this record just because this is the first album that you've had production credits on. Mm. What's it like for you to take that kind of creative ownership of a whole album and, you know, look at it in a more fulsome way? Yeah, I think, like, production is always a tricky um, credit because it can mean so many different things. It's quite a fluid term. Um and I think in ways I've produced my music in the past, but I didn't have the confidence to ask to be credited, um, especially with my music because it's not like it, it, a lot of it is just like very each song is treated like, okay, what does this song need? And um, yeah, so it's just just kind of feeling more confident in the studio and, and also respecting my strengths. I think I always felt very... Um, you know, I I can't like use Pro Tools or like mm-hmm. very well, and I can't, you know, I can't read music. I can't do a lot of these things that I guess sometimes you associate with being like a real musician. And so I think it's just growing to like really appreciate though, like that I do actually bring a lot to the table. It just looks a little bit different than like some things. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just. Yeah, and I just I just worked I I just really thought about how I wanted this record to sound and I really fought for it in the studio and so I was just like, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm taking that credit. Yeah. And yeah. I love the way it sounded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and it's it's interesting you talk about, you know, not wanting to spend so much time looking backwards mm-hmm. having been an artist for so long. So, let's look forwards, Julia. What does the future hold for you? I think I'm just, I am at a really good place and I 
I just I feel like I finally I finally understand music now. It took me a really long time. Like I just feel very I feel a bit relaxed about it and I'm and I don't feel as much like in the spotlight. I feel I don't know, once people have made three albums like I don't know, the the pressure's off a bit. Mm. It's not as like I don't feel like I have to prove myself as much anymore and I just want to enjoy it and I want to like yeah, I'm just kind of excited to make music for the first time in years like it used to just be, I don't know, took me a long time to not feel scared about it. And I just feel really, I feel really relaxed. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know what's next. I really don't. I'm like, I have no idea. I want to do something different though. I want to try something else. <laughs> not different career, just like <laughs> musically. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like whatever you do next, you're coming at it from such a good place. So I'm so excited to see what it is. Yeah. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And I'm so excited to have had you on Out of the Box today. It's been such an honour getting to interview you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Let's end with a Billy Bragg song. Can you tell me why you picked this? I just picked this song because I remember going to see Billy Bragg at the Metro with my dad and I had to use my sister's ID because I was under 18. And I don't know, it was just like such a beautiful memory I have of my youth because I don't think I'd ever my dad's from England and he's from the north and I just remember when Billy Bragg played this song and my dad's like got his like fist in the air and I just saw this different side of my dad and you know you kind of I just like connected him as being someone that was once not my dad (laughs) you know that had a youth Mm. and that's just been a really huge part of my songwriting kind of like picking apart my parents unfortunately for them (laughs) but like that was a big moment because I was just like oh wow like dad has like had a has a past and like he has a he has like opinions um and he has like he likes things that are outside of me because yeah at the time I was like I don't know 15 or something and also I'd, I'd grown up listening to Billy Bragg always hated it I was like every time dad put it on I'd be like turn it off (laughs) um and I just remember hearing this song and I just thought like oh songwriting's really cool and it can really um I don't know it's such a great vehicle for messaging and um it just felt really exciting and I remember he played for three hours and he did like five encores and it was great as a teenager who just yeah just hadn't experienced something like that before I just remember it being super exciting and it's just a beautiful, young Sydney memory. Yeah. A beautiful song to finish this episode of Out of the Box, chosen by the wonderful Julia Jacklin on FBI Radio 94.5. This is There Is Power in a Union by Billy Bragg. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in today. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do that on the programs page on fbiradio.com where I'll also have a full list of songs that Julia brought to the show. You can also listen back by the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a big shout out to Tanya Ali, who researched and produced this episode alongside Mary Ventura. And do stay tuned. Lunch is right around the corner. FBI. In the cities and the farmlands, the trenches full of mud. Boys who always been the bosses wiser. The union forever defending our rights. Bound with the black leather world.
brothers and our sisters, many far off lands, there is power. 